Welcome to another edition of Consensus Unreality. Before we get into today's episode, we want to invite you to join us over at patreon.com slash consensus unreality, where we host exclusive episodes, discussions, feedback experiments, written content, and much more. We are planning to move over some of the kind of stuff that we'll put on the main cast uh, on over to the Patreon. We're going to expand it a little bit, have a little bit more of everything we've been doing already, and... It's sort of the best way you can support us. It's $5 a month. And if you like what we do over here in the free podcasts, uh, yeah, you'll be seeing a lot more of that kind of stuff over on Patreon. And it's the best way to support Ben and David of Consensus Unreality. So here is another beautiful episode. (laughs) Again, I don't know. Here's the episode. to episode 52 of Consensus on Reality. Uh, today we have Joshua Kutchin here to talk about his new book, The Ecology, or not The Ecology of Souls. That's like uh, Pixies and whatever, not the Pixies. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Ecology of Souls, two volumes plus a lengthy bibliography and notes. It's kind of like a, I don't know, but welcome. Did you set out to write sort of like a magnum opus type thing well you know the re- the real genesis for it was that ann streber quote um yeah. which is uh you know after communion a bunch of experiencers are writing them <clears throat> and uh you know i think that she sort of served basically as an administrative assistant for whitley um and uh <clears throat> she had made some observations as she went through the the correspondence and he mentioned several times in his books that there was one day when he walked into the study and she had a couple of notes scribbled on this sheet of paper. And one of them was, this has something to do with what we call death. Mm-hmm. So that always piqued my interest. And then yeah. there's, um, you know, there's this, I wouldn't say it's common, but it's persistent enough that it deserves attention um, trend for people during heavy periods of UFO contact or uh even during alien abductions to see dead loved ones. Mm. And, you know, that doesn't square with my interpretation. (laughs) It didn't, I guess, square with my interpretation of the phenomenon. So I was like, well, okay, let's take a look at this a little bit closer. And that's when I realized that this death connection to UFOs kind of uh, lurks in the background of Passport to Magonia too, because, Mm -hmm. you know, Valet drew all these connections between uh, fairies and UFO phenomena, but he didn't, take it that extra step which i think kind of needs to be taken which is well a lot of these cultures closely associated the faithful with the dead um and that's something that you see worldwide strongest in western europe but you really do see that connection worldwide either fairies uh you know fairies being seen alongside the dead or you know someone going to fairyland and meeting a dead neighbor or someone dying and becoming a fairy like you see these things over and over and over and over again um so I was like, okay, well, I, I'll just unpack this one little tiny aspect. 
And that was when I was like, okay, well, you sort of need to talk about near-death experiences. And, well, you know, near-death experiences are kind of like out-of-body experiences brought on by trauma. And, well, and so I kept on doing that until I realized, oh, this is this kind of turns into, not my original intention, but it kind of turns into a, a holistic approach to the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Um, because you keep finding these connections to the dead, and they're really consistent across different interpretations. Like, I don't, I don't know if you all have had a chance to get to the... Uh, the section on um basically it's, it's the chapter on ley lines but you know you see these yeah. ley lines and they look a lot like ami michelle's orthotonies that he talked about in the 60s even though that concept yeah. has since been you know debunked um i think it's still a very powerful concept and we still sit with that today but they're also connected to ley lines and this idea that the the dead would travel between sacred sites on straight lines so it's kind of just this dead motif that keeps on reinventing itself so before i knew it yes it was (laughs) this holistic snapshot of the way that i in my head pieced together all this and the focal point is broadly speaking death but more accurately probably speaking the cycle of of death and, and rebirth that i suspect it actually lies behind uh behind Mm -hmm. our waking existence Mm. yeah i think it's like an excellent book uh especially in terms of the way that the conversation is shaping around ufos currently it almost seems like the uh either the extraterrestrial hypothesis or like the nuts and bolts thing is kind of rearing its head again um and this book actually reminds me a lot of um fw holiday's goblin universe which um I th- you mentioned F.W. Holiday in the book a bunch of times, right? Was that like a big yeah. inspiration? Um, you know, the Goblin Universe less so than his work with Loch Ness. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> although I think that, you know, there are certain certain things about him and his ideas that for someone who is into high strangeness and who really embraces this, the odd outliers of the UFO phenomenon, you can't really get away from. Like they just sort of, <laughs> you sort of absorb them through osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting because... I would have said that in the brief amount of time that, you know, I had been involved in this topic, um, you know, my first book was 2015. Um, and even in that brief amount of time, probably from 2015 to like 2018, um, the, the tenor of conversation regarding this stuff had really come to embrace a lot of these sort of more esoteric ideas and sort of the, um, the occult ideas and these ideas surrounding altered states of consciousness, but it's like, it's like uh, that sort of triggered a, an allergic reaction amongst <laughs> the, I'm not going to if I say deep state, it has all these other connotations yeah. nowadays. Right. But you yeah, know what sure. I mean? Like, I don't yeah, mean, yeah. you know, a Trumpian deep state. I just mean like, you know, just the, the deep app, apparatus yeah. and the, in the three letter agencies and whatnot. And so all of a sudden we've got this, what I like to call technological fetishism coming back. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's all about, propulsion systems and you know aircraft and uh you know what planet are they coming from and it's i feel like it almost sort of pulled the conversation away from that um of course the ironic thing is that it seems like all the people who are really interested in disclosure um are a lot up to speed or are are less up to speed on these sort of extended consciousness effects and basically occult phenomena than the people who are actually you know pulling the levers inside the authority structures like they all seem to be very well versed in this stuff and it's just the the disclosure community which like keeps it at arm's length because i guess they just want it to be little green men and flying saucers and i i don't really understand that impulse you know i i i i I am sympathetic to it because it's what we all grew up with but like i think it's 
so much more fun to talk about all the alternative ideas of what it can be because the the eth yeah. the extraterrestrial hypothesis has just been done to death yeah, yeah that's funny I, I wrote down before the interview i wanted to ask you in sort of a funny way like uh do you think there's life on other planets <laughs> oh you're muted <laughs> yeah i do i was i was laughing and i started sorry about that yeah. um I try, I try to, I try to be really good with the mute because you know sometimes you cough and sometimes yeah, you have yeah. you know bodily functions. And uh-huh. um, but uh, you know, it's, this is, I do, I do think there's life on other yeah. planets. Um, you know, I, I think it would be presumptuous to assume that there's not. It's just a question of whether that's what we're seeing and whether that's right. what's here. Um, and uh, you know, it's one of those things where this is something I did pick up from Greg Bishop is it's almost sort of a Zen idea where if there's an idea that is interesting and maybe even a little bit less likely, but it's not getting talked about shine a spotlight on that. So just so that we can discuss it and give it it's, it's time. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause you know, we've been, ufologists have been pounding away on this thing for 70 years and I don't really think there's, <clears throat> we're substantially farther along than we were. I mean, again, it's, it's more, it's easier to talk about this stuff in polite society. Right. But yeah, it's still not in terms of, you know, big a answers. I don't think we're that much further along. <clears throat> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I do think there's life on other planets. I, I, I would sort of call into question nuts and bolts spacecraft because these yeah. things do seem to reside in this Jungian in between space um, that is both at once psychic and physical. Um, like ghosts, I would argue, you know, ghosts are intangible but can slam doors, and psi phenomena is all in your head but can, you know, manipulate the environment. So one of the ideas that I'm sort of more um, sympathetic to is that, yes, it's aliens, but we're seeing like alien remote viewers, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's yeah. this great story. I'm not sure. Are you familiar with the Ingo Swan story from Penetration about uh, yeah. seeing the moon base? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah so for anybody who's listening, um, Ingo Swan was tasked with remote viewing the moon base and he's surprised because there's like the civilization there and slowly the people on the moon, again, I don't know if there are people on the moon, right? But it's a cool story the people on the moon slowly see that the, that there's something there and they turn around and they acknowledge him. And he's like, well, remote viewing is supposed to be a one way thing. Like why, why, why can they see me? And the question is, well, what did they see? And Ingo said, well, maybe they were more psychically attuned so they could see me. And that, that brings into all sorts of questions. Well, what if that happened and we were at the receiving end of that? Right. Mm. So what if there's an extraterrestrial that was able to remote view or astral project or any of these terms that you want to use. And, uh, and, and someone was on the ground, what would they see? They might see a bright light in the sky acting erratically. And, you know, the fact that Ingo thought that it was the psychically um, attuned people who could see him sort of brings in that whole question of why, why does, why does it seem that uh, people who have UFO contact end up being more, more psychic, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. So I'm sympathetic to that. I'm sympathetic to the idea of extraterrestrial ghosts, which I know all, all sound a lot sillier to some people um, than, than just uh, aliens coming down here. But, you know, we don't need to bang on the problems about the extraterrestrial hypothesis because the late, had you know a big outline decades ago talking For about sure. the problems with that mm-hmm. yes, and then again yeah. there's this specter of death that just mm. looms over the whole thing yeah what do you think of like the from like the nuts and bolts angle like what do you think are these so-called like recovered artifacts do you think that that's some sort of uh something else like in, like in the fairy tradition how there can be like sort of like objects 
Yeah, this is a real Patrick Harper sort of view that he talks about mm -hmm. in Demonic Reality. I mean, we've always had artifacts from the other, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you can still to this day go to some museums overseas and see fairy flags and tiny little fairy shoes made out of mouse skin mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And to say nothing of, you know, saints relics and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, and some of these are demonstrably fake, but still have abilities attributed to them. You know, yeah. so the statue of the Virgin Mary that shouldn't have anything strange about it, but somehow weeps blood. Like, mm. what does that mean? Right. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that these sort of meta materials might be something more akin to that might be something more akin to a porch that you see in poltergeist phenomenon. Um, yeah. You know, I, I always find it interesting where they say, you know, well, we can't make this material and the implication is always on this planet, but like that could mean a lot of things. <laughs> it could mean in this reality, it could mean, you know, yeah. there's always a presumption that if we had technology, we could replicate these metamaterials, materials. And I'm, I'm not so sure. And the example that I end up getting around to in the second volume, so that's why you haven't seen it yet. Cause I do address this mm -hmm. um, is, uh, is, you know, what, if you want to play like a little thought game, what would an analysis of, Thor's hammer or Hermes's staff look like, right? You know, like what and 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 if it really was from one of those mythological characters, how would a a culture that has been told that miracles don't exist and that there's nothing beyond the material react to that? You know, I think they sort of scoff at it or they, you know, jump to the extraterrestrial hypothesis and I think this also ties further into some of the possible motivations behind disclosure, you know, authority structures have never from what i can tell maybe i should phrase this a little bit better from what i can tell authority structures have never really sought to keep discoveries of new lands and new peoples from from their populace right mm -hmm. the thing that they've always suppressed time and again over um over the course of history stretching back to you know rome at least is you know, spiritual movements and uh, political movements, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> I, I kind of can't help but see the Roman persecution of the Dionysian, you know, mystery cults and think, well, you know, maybe, maybe we're seeing something more like that. And the example that I just sort of come around to is like, which upends your reality more that reality looks like close encounters of the third kind or that reality looks like the Iliad, like, which is, <laughs> which has more bearing on your day-to-day -day life, which is weirder. And I know what my answer is, right? <laughs> like, you know, that I would, I could go to sleep knowing that there are aliens eventually. I don't know if I could go to sleep knowing that there's the, the Greek pantheon out there <laughs> watching yeah. over us, yeah. you know, and that's not, that's obviously not my literal, um, my literal <laughs> takeaway, but I think it's, it's a good like thought experiment to be like, well, this mm. has super important implications too, that authorities might wish to suppress. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's I'm, funny. I'm glad you mentioned the, the young thing too, because uh, in the book you kind of um, isolate some, stuff about young and the, the points of contention, uh, which he's viewed in the field. Um, but I mean, he was kind of like, uh, still on the fence about the whole issue at, at, towards the end. Right. And I mean, it just never kind of resolved for him. It was really causing a lot of problems for him to think about. Yeah. I mean the, so, I mean, I think, yeah. So you'll read some UFO slash 14 scholars who will say, well, young was actually an ETHer, Right. And I, don't really know how you get that there are some indications that he spoke about that privately but that was never his public stance um in it in to, to walk away from his um flying saucers essay and with that with that feeling is a really selective reading i feel um 
you know, when on the other hand, if you place what he was saying about the UFO somehow being psychic and material and straddling this line that we don't have the tools to quite measure, when you when you set that concept along with the rest of his body of work, it seems much more in line with, with what he was talking about in terms of archetypes and the collective unconscious and the way that these things can have a reality, but not necessarily in the way that we would prefer to manage to, to, to measure them, you know? Right. Yeah. Materialized psychism, right. Is, is, uh, how it's worded. Yeah. He, 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 that's, that's the exact phrase that he used. Um, and he was quite disquieted by that. He said that the possibility of a materialized psychism opens a void at our feet. Um, and, and it does, (laughs) uh, it, it really does. Um, and you know, I had I was talking with another podcaster about sort of the explanations that us who love high strangeness like to trot out. And she said, "But aren't those all kind of convenient?" And I'm like, "Yeah, they are. Like, you got to be like, yeah, it's it's really convenient to say. Well, sometimes it's physical, and sometimes it's not. <laughs> you know, because that's the only explanation that can encompass all this. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to go. Well, sometimes it's hoaxes, and sometimes it's." You know, it doesn't exist at all. It's like, well, okay, that would be a lot easier to, to walk away from. But um, I think we need to keep in mind that if there is an intelligence that is positioned with complete autonomy and complete authority, um, it can do whatever it damn well pleases, you know. Mm. It, it, I'm talking about positioned you know, maybe it's a spiritual positioning, maybe it's a dimensional positioning, maybe it's but if it, if it can actually manipulate the levers of reality then you know it, it i i i think it could be in control of the entire situation um right and you know it's like with my with my toddlers like if i'm holding something that i don't want them to get they're not going to get it <laughs> and you know this is a little bit truer when they were babies but if they do get it like i can set those parameters and manage those parameters pretty well you mm-hmm. know and if you extend that to the ufo question well yeah i can decide if you get to take a photograph or not you know <laughs> true yeah, yeah. it's yeah. possible possibly again i i do i that was something that just really stuck with me is that these these explanations are convenient but um right but maybe that's by design you know yeah i wonder like what do you think of the sort of conspiratorial angle? Like you mentioned the sort of uh, the deep state, not, you know, not the, not the one that we hear about now, but yeah, like the intelligence aspect of it and just maybe like the human factor in general, how much do you think that plays into it? Like, yeah, the, the world of espionage and that sort of thing and the controlling of the public's mind. Well, I think that they obviously realize that something strange is going on. Um, and I'm, I'm going to say this and people will sort of get um, all put off by it, but you can, you can say that they know that there's something mysterious going on and also see the ways that they could take advantage of that. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I was saying this back in when the, when the, the, the footage got released a couple of years ago, which wasn't really released. It had been around since like 2008, I think. Yeah. But, um, but you know, it was like, well, does anybody not realize that we're in the middle of a, the second cold war? Like right. <laughs> if we survive past this period in history, I'm pretty sure. And it doesn't go hot. Right. Yeah. Those two are related. I'm pretty sure that we'll, we'll call it that, you know, it's cold war too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, so, so you've got some saber rattling and some, some, uh, some veiled messaging going on between superpowers. And you also have, 
you know, oh, the Navy is taking civilian reports of UFOs. Does that not sound like crowdsourcing to anybody else? You know, <laughs> like, like keep an eye out for strange stuff in our skies. Must be UFOs. Thanks so much, ufologist. Mm, hey, buddy, yeah. we got another you know, Chinese drone coming over here. Right. right. Huh. So, yeah. you know, I, I think that has to be taken into account, too. Um, and then you've got all the stuff, you know, out at Skinwalker Ranch getting thrown into the mix. And it's just, right. it becomes so difficult to separate the strange from the sophisticated you know espionage apparatus you know and that's probably the point right um so yeah i think there's a i think there's i think there's something there's something going on there i'm not so sure that we've recovered anything um and if we have i'm not so sure that anybody knows what to do with it you know even if you're even if you're a fan of the extraterrestrial hypothesis like how would a neanderthal reverse engineer an iphone like <laughs> it's yeah. just not gonna happen you know you don't even have the tools to make the tools to make the tools to make the damn thing you know yeah, yeah. right yeah that's crazy i wonder like yeah how because i mean there's sort of like at least in some of the sort of paranormal circles there is sort of like a or not i guess like maybe the more the conspiracy theory kind of circles there's sort of the belief that there's nothing to this other than sort of uh, a mass manipulation program. Like it, all it is is to cover advanced weaponry and it's just a smoke screen. Like yeah. that's like a very yeah. popular thing right now. Which well, I don't and, buy, and, and, but, and that's, yeah. that's reductive in the other direction too. Yeah. Right. And it's, I think it's just like the UFO phenomenon itself. I mean, I've said this and these numbers may be skewed, but they're just sort of my own personal headcanon that I came up with. Like, 80% of sightings are probably misidentifications, you know, and that remaining 20% is not just UFOs, right? It's a lot of different things. Like yeah. it's unorthodox aircraft. It's poorly understood weather phenomena. It's, um, it's, uh, perhaps some psi phenomena it's perhaps some spirit phenomena and it might even be extraterrestrials as well i think we're dealing with more of a grab bag yeah. than we are you know any one thing so similarly like you know i don't think it's all i don't think it's all manipulation or all hiding the truth about aliens from zebel ganubi right like i think that there's a spectrum in there and you know and I, I think it's really interesting to see some of the the recent things come out about the interest that this you know military apparatus has had in things that don't normally fall under the extraterrestrial umbrella. Like, I think they're, they're looking for whatever they can to weaponize and to get one yeah. up on somebody, you know? So I, I think it's, I think it's just a mixture of things really. Yeah. 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 I'm glad you said that. And uh, I mean, that's what I appreciate so much about a book like this. Um, there does seem to be like a bit of a mirage men effect, like especially on Twitter and stuff to, kind of reduce it and I mean it's not to diminish like that kind of work because that is such a strong aspect of it maybe it is the majority aspect of it is truly um, you know shadow play conspiracy and disinformation but at the same time what you mentioned that other 20% is genuine uh, phenomena you know yeah and you know I do have to look askance at the way that some of UFO Twitter which I famously left back in like yeah. 2019 <laughs> like i was just like i'm done um death threats will do that to you yeah, um sure. but you know I, I i have to question the wisdom of ever eating out of the hand so readily of authorities as as a lot of ufo twitter tends to mm -hmm. um you know i mean i <clears throat> and and it just I see. I want to get real snarky right now, <laughs> but like, but it it just speaks to me like also a a real a lack of awareness regarding what's happened in this phenomenon 
this 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 ufo military complex for like the past 70 years like, you know it's it's been used for deception time and again but you know the best deception is to sandwich you know a truth between two lies so right. there's yeah. you right. know there's some which is why generally speaking like if you want somebody to talk to you about roswell or rendlesham or the tic tac stuff like i'm not your guy and it's it's not that i'm not paying attention to it but i, I read it and i listen to it and i I look at it and it just goes in one ear and out the other because I don't know what to treat with any degree of, of, of seriousness. Whereas, you know, when it's stuff from a witness who has nothing else to lose, then, yeah. you know, my ears perk up. And, you know, for me, somebody who loves the high strangeness, like if somebody comes to me and says, yeah, I was abducted by aliens and I was taken up in a bright light to a craft and they poked and prodded me. And then they, you know, opened me up and closed me up and then returned me to my bed. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But when somebody tells that same story and somewhere in there, they go, there was this one odd detail. The alien was wearing a shirt that said, I heart New York. <laughs> like <laughs> that's, that's when my ears perk up even even yeah. you know strong more stronger because it's just these details like nobody who is fabricating would include if they're actually trying to be taken seriously right and that right. to me carries with it a veneer of 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 seriousness now that again that might be my own personal shortcoming and my own personal uh tastes uh coming mm -hmm. into play but i just it's it, and and that to me just yeah yeah, I, I if I was making up an ET story, even knowing all this stuff, I wouldn't I would include details like that. <laughs> even knowing that high strangeness is a is a hallmark of the phenomena, I wouldn't Yeah. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're always so idiosyncratic and, and just seem like they're chosen at random. They're so weird, but and I dream logic and yeah, yeah. all this stuff. Yeah. That right. kind of leads me into hey, I wanted to ask you about the role that like the sort of psychedelic thing and McKenna and those sorts. Cause that's like a big part of certainly the first volume here. It comes into play. And then from the descriptions I'm looking at, you know, it looks like it comes into play a bit more. So what does the, yeah, well, the psychedelic thing come in? So the, the title ecology of souls actually is a Terrence McKenna ism as far mm -hmm. as I can tell. And maybe it appeared earlier, but yeah. he uh, mentioned that once you enter the DMT realm, realm, one of the possibilities he had considered was that you had entered an ecology of souls. And he kept drawing comparisons to how this sounds, seems very much like passing beyond that transition, that threshold of death. And if you look at the stories, you know, light phenomena going down through a tunnel emerging into a, what feels like a subterranean space with immense pressure above you. I mean, it has all these hallmarks of NDEs and these trips to the underworld and things yeah. like that. And then you start unpacking the stuff around a lot of these entheogens and it almost always seems like it comes back around to death. Um, you know, McKenna said that he turned a Buddhist Lama onto DMT and the, and the Lama told him that was as far as you could go without, you know, without, passing the point of no return right yeah. <laughs> and uh so mckenna started calling it the bungee into the bardo but you look at other entheogens like you know everything from salvia to um detura to you know famously ayahuasca the vine of the dead the vine of the souls are they're all talking about entering that ancestral realm and oftentimes piercing that barrier between life and death and that's when sort of a light bulb clicked off for me is i don't think that I don't think that there really is a purest form of contact experience, one that's stripped of all cultural baggage and all everything else that we associate it with. But if there is, it's probably the near-death experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, people have pointed out similarities between 
shamanic initiation, which often involves intelligence, but shamanic initiation and the alien abduction experience. And people have pointed out things between similarities between the alien abduction experience and the near death experience, which itself has the fingerprints of the out of body experience. Uh, I'm thinking of Eddie Bullard and Kenneth ring um, respectively have pointed out those have made those points, but I, I don't think anyone has ever fully adopted the stance of that's because you're always passing beyond the death threshold. And that's kind of what this book does. It says, okay, look, there are all these similarities and you can extend that to trips to fairyland to even some cryptid encounters. Not all, it's not as easy to do, but you can make some comparisons. Um, and it kind of makes me wonder if, if these experiences don't happen again on the other side of that threshold, which is life and death. Now the book doesn't try to, you know, redefine what the afterlife is or what ghosts are, or what death is because it's, too damn long anyway right <laughs> but yeah. but um but i i kind of yeah. do wonder if, if all this isn't just some sort of variation on passing over that that threshold into the other world the afterlife um etc and then you know when things don't seem to have those hallmarks of other world travel like missing time like tunnel experiences like ultimatums like life reviews etc if it's not you know a Bigfoot shaman on the other side, <laughs> you know, taking five dried grams in silent darkness and popping over into our reality. Right. Or, you know, same thing with the, with the, with the UFO thing. Right. If, if, if everything else around it seems normal, maybe they're visiting us instead of us visiting them in whatever sort of realm this is. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, um, you know, you mentioned so many different witness accounts in the book. Uh, I know briefly you mentioned the Andreasen affair. That seems to be the one that converted Raymond Fowler kind of away from the nuts and bolts thing. Um, that's one that I think sticks out to us, probably a lot of other people, is that metaphysical yeah, death journey. Yeah, I mean... I, I think there are a couple of hallmark cases that you've got to talk about when you're talking about this connection. And that's one of them because everything about her experiences is just absolutely drenched in near death experience imagery. And like, and you're exactly right. That was the sort of the catalyst for Fowler's um, uh, sort of change in perspective. Um, and, you know, to his credit, cause a lot of people, you know, I'm obviously again, I'm biased, but a lot of people don't look at this and say, "Oh, maybe I have my inter maybe my interpretation of the phenomena phenomenon is wrong." Right? So, yeah, Fowler um, talked to Andreasen, who not only had all those themes of shamanic dismemberment that you see in alien abductions, but also was using language like, you know, returning to the one through this bright, bright gate. Um, and you know everyone will pass through this gate to meet the one and the and fowler even said like this what's the what are the things that everybody does you're born and you die right like that's, those are the two universal constants and you can find little it's so funny because like you find these little quotes here and there in these old journals where you follow just kind of like almost touch upon this idea and then back away from it like i know it's some um, something that runs through some of preston dennis uh work with some of the people that he's spoken to where he talks about, you know, maybe alien abductions happen to everyone and not everybody realizes it. I'm like, well, you realize that you're putting that alongside death and birth, right? Like <laughs> death, birth, alien abductions, like happen to everyone. I mean, I guess eating and sleeping and, you know, taking a dump, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see the way that these ideas, um, even though they are not, um, held by the ufological rank and file sort of pop their way in and out of, of, uh, of these old journals and these old interviews and stuff. Huh. Yeah. 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 That's one that uh, just like the um, archetypal al alchemical symbols, just like keep every time I like 
I'll read something new and then I'll think like, oh, that's kind of mentioned in Andreasen's like journey or descent or whatever, however you want to deem it. But that's just an insane case. Well, and you know, another famous thing from her stories, <clears throat> I mean, I like what you said about the alchemical stuff, because like every time yeah. you see like UFO, uh, you know, emblems on a UFO craft or on a, or on a uh, euphonaut space suit or something or alien riding, you're like, you can almost always find some sort of alchemical yeah. connection or, mm-hmm. or some sort of, you know, occult connection. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the most famous things that's like, couldn't be any more explicit was Andreas and seeing like this holographic Phoenix mm-hmm. that like right. <laughs> flamed up and died and became ashes and rose from the ashes. Like that's the most, you couldn't be more on the nose actually <laughs> if you tried. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's cr- yeah. That's wild. Do you think like, what, uh, what do you think happens when we die? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not necessarily. Well, actually, no, actually, not. actually, no, I kind of, I kind of do have a model and I touch on this um, yeah. towards the end because like a lot of this book was just me who, you know, I identify as a Christian. Um, no, I am a Christian. And uh, at the same time, I can't turn a blind eye to a lot of this strangeness. Um, yeah. So a lot of this book, you know, if, if you read it with that in mind, you can kind of see me kind of trying to sort through all this stuff and reconcile it. And that's what the afterward is, is me speaking to that directly. But um, in some of the chapters leading up to the afterward, I kind of hint at a model that I think is probably the closest to, to what happens. Again, this is just this is just a way for me to make it work, right? It might not be objectively real, but this is, this is what I think is that um, there is like a... a sea of soul um on the other side of the veil and uh you know uh we are each waves on that sea right which is a nice way whenever somebody's like well reincarnation can't be real because there are more people on earth than there have ever been well okay how many waves can there be on the ocean right like <laughs> it's it's theoretically <laughs> infinite right so we're each little concrescences of, of consciousness that arise out of this, I think. And uh, when we make that transition, we draw from that. And I don't think that things like reincarnation are, um, I do think that there's a lot of good evidence for something like reincarnation. If you look at the work of Ian Stevenson um, and folks like that, um, Jim Tucker, who have looked at some of these cases, they're really, really compelling. I don't think it's a one-to-one thing, you know, I don't think I was Ben in a past life and now I'm Josh. Right. I think that like I was Ben and Tommy and Samantha and Zubel Gornax, you know, I think I was anything that can live has been over there. And just like, you know, the way that raindrops coalesce from the sea or that moisture coalesces into a cloud uh, and falls to earth, like the molecules in that raindrop, could have been anywhere and everywhere all over the planet. I think it might be something similar um, with uh, with the reincarnation process, which is my way of coming to terms not only with reincarnation, but some of the stranger things that I had to sort of face in writing this book. So, like, I always like to go after things that make me kind of uncomfortable or that don't fit my model, right? Or, like, how do I explain that? And one of the things that I always pulled away from was like pre-birth memories and alien abductions or, you know, yeah. the past life memories, or one of the things that's hardest for me to swallow is this idea of, of dual souls in, mm. in alien abduction uh, research, which is this idea that like, well, part of me is human and part of me is gray alien. And sometimes the gray alien part of me leaves and comes back. It's like, but if you're <laughs> thinking about it, like if you're thinking about us being made of multiple parts that once might've been everything from, you know, if you want to take an animus perspective, mountains to rivers, to 
to moose to bears to aliens to other human beings like it makes that a little bit easier to understand that and you know this idea of this ancient idea of, of polypsychism which i think mm-hmm. um i think one of the most unwise decisions we ever made in the west was to sort of abandon that idea because i think it's so useful for explaining some of the conflicts that we have you know the idea that you have multiple souls multiple parts within you um i think is at the very least a more potent metaphor to deal with sort of the internal conflicts that we have Mm. yeah i mean it definitely feels that way like i feel like any human being that you meet feels that way so yeah it is interesting that it's not well i mean yeah like my head's telling me one thing and my heart's telling me something else it's like yeah that's 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 polypsychism, uh, and once you sort of adopt that polypsychic um, stance, or entertain that polypsychic stance, I guess I should say, because you know you don't necessarily have to adopt it, but once you open up that possibility, it really makes a lot of things snap in place for me, at least. You know, mm-hmm. out of body experiences make more sense. Doppelgangers make more sense. It allows you to sort of reframe some instances of UFO phenomena, perhaps as doppelgangers, which I talk about in volume two a bit. Yeah. Um, you know, it just, and, and you know, uh, people who meet their clones aboard UFOs, right, right, right. they meet their clones and like, they almost always look exactly like the person down to like scars and stuff. And it's like, mm. well, okay, that's not the way that we understand cloning works, but if it's, if it's a projection of yourself, then it, then it might be something like that. So again, this is why when you pull on that death thread in, in the UFO <laughs> lore, like you end up talking about all these things that you, right didn't think you would which you know if i just set out to write the book starting with ufos i would have been digressing you know every other paragraph to to explain these older concepts that's why i was like you know hell with that i'm just going to write about these older (laughs) concepts and bring everyone up to speed and volume two is more or less the ufo book you know there's plenty of ufos in volume two volume one but volume two is kind of the ufo book Mm. no i think it's 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 yeah kind of essential for you to gather the sort of threads that you're working with before you approach it um what do you think of why do the gray aliens kind of look like a combination of skeletons and embryos? Well, yeah. So I have this, I'm doing a, I'm doing a talk in Missouri next week. Um, and one of my slides is, you know, talks about how if you wanted to draw a grace, a gray alien skeleton, like, how would you really differentiate that from a gray alien, right? Like they're so yeah. skeletal to begin with. And I'm like, mm. well, certainly seasoned ufologists can tell the difference. And then I throw up a slide of the Roswell slides, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, where they said, Oh, it's a, you know, it's a dead native American boy. It must be an alien. Right. It's just what a mess. Um, yeah. But I think, but I think, you know, in that folly, we can see how similar these things are. And, you know, you can, yeah, I have a whole probably, at least quarter of a chapter and you know these are chunky chapters right i have at least a whole quarter of a chapter dedicated to comparing grays to the dead but even when they're not grays you know these therianthropes that you see are oftentimes animals that we associate with death or have associated Mm. with death they're archetypal earth animals right Mm. that wouldn't be out of place at all in you know shamanic practice um so that to me is is the dead angle like maybe they are the dead um yeah you know because you have Gray's transforming into the appearance of, of dead loved ones. And, you know, the ETHers like to say it's a screen memory and that's all fine and good, but you can say screen memories all the way down. Right. And then mm. <laughs> what's there to investigate, right? Everything's a screen memory. Right, right. So like, let's try to engage with this on the way it looks. So like, that's one idea. Um, 
you know, that there's some sort of, you know, the, the graves are always drones. And if you look into a lot of different spiritual traditions, they talk about, you know, your ego being removed after you make that transition. So maybe that's mm-hmm. part of the reason that they look so uniform, you know, ghosts in a lot of traditions um, could shapeshift. It's, it's a very modern idea that ghosts always look the way that they did when they were alive, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in, especially in the classical trans- tradition, you know, Roman Grecian ghosts would look like anything and grow to enormous right. size, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's the dead angle. <laughs> um, the fetus angle is, um, you know, I, I, I'm kind of torn because uh, I don't want to ruin your appreciation of the book, but, uh, but, you know, I, I do address this towards the end. And I, I think that maybe um, the, the whole hybridization program, because, you know, we're always told that they're being released on earth and they're walking among us. Like, what if that's true? Because they are us, right? Like if, mm-hmm. what if the hybridization program, isn't a theatrical re- recreation, a theatrical reification um, of, of, of conception, you know, and mm-hmm. this is like, you're, you're getting to see what happens as a soul was formed, you know, mm-hmm. and it's covered and it's just, it's, um, it's wrapped up in this technological appearance to make it more palatable to us. Um, whereas, mm-hmm. you know, if you had been, if you had seen a similar situation, in 1100 France, you might see, you know, cherubs stewarding angel st- children, you know, children's souls and storks and, you know, any number of things. But I, I think there might be something to that, that the greys are actually well bearers from the well of souls, because that's the thing about these reincarnation stories and these pre-birth memory stories, which are like the hardest for me to, to swallow, right? The <laughs> idea that I was a ball of light aboard an ET spacecraft, like, they, these stories aren't going away though yeah. you know so you can you can do one of two things you can just say well these are crazy people but we all live in glass houses so let's take a, a where the footprints in sort of angle and say okay well if these are real how do we reconcile this so that mm-hmm. was you know cha- challenging myself was a huge part of this book and that was a big part of it so i think that the you know um perhaps the most stripped down naked version of our souls is the luminous light orbs that you see across all paranormal phenomena. Mm. And I think one step a little bit more developed from that are those fetal proportions. And then we're born with those fetal proportions and we sort of grow out out of them as we, you know, as we develop and then we die and back to light and then back to those fetal proportions. Mm. It's an idea, right? <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, again, so much of this is just about me trying to figure out a way to make this work for me. Um, you know, sure. And it's, yeah. it's not easy. <laughs> I think that's probably yeah. the way that like everybody must approach the phenomena though. Right. It's such a personal thing. Right. And, and, you know, for me again, like there are so many things about the paranormal in general that, I was able to at least make some sense of after taking this approach. Like another good example is that you find these stories, um, not super common, but way too often to be ignored of UFOs that turn into birds Mm. (laughs) or birds that turn into UFOs. Like, you know, I I think that people have stumbled across these and you're like, well, what the heck do I do with that? And that doesn't make so much sense until you realize, Oh, one of the most universal symbols for the soul was the bird. Like, and by universal, like, I mean, like, literally every p- people on every continent talked about, conceptualized the, 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 the soul as a bird in some form or fashion. You can find yeah. it everywhere. So then, okay, well, then if you take this idea that Jung literally, um, literally suggested in his flying saucers, I say that UFOs are souls, 
then that connection makes you know perfect sense you know mm-hmm. similar to similar to something like dogman like mm-hmm. gonna go out on a limb and say we're never gonna catch or kill a dogman like <laughs> i'm sorry um I've, you know i've got a bridge to sell you if you think that um but uh but once you frame that within the traditional concept of of werewolves and the idea that it was someone in a trance or someone sleeping in their wandering soul leaving their body and you know wounds inflicted upon that soul would be in, would be mirrored on the human body it starts to make more sense man it just mm. does for me you know it mm. just really does yeah how how do you deal with like this sort of cryptid thing because i see that you mentioned it toward the end of volume two how do you kind of bring that in well i think that the, the key for me was really embracing that ecology concept right mm-hmm. and when I sort of looked at things through that ecology concept, I um, was led into some places that I found rewarding. Right. Um, So if you think about, well, first of all, why are we talking about all this stuff holistically? Well, there are a lot of similarities across these different phenomena, but I think that um, it's interesting to me that, you know, we talk about higher selves in theosophy, right? The idea that there's some sort of superposition intelligence that knows what's best for us and is kind of guiding us from behind the scenes. And we like to talk about them being guardian angels or an aspect of ourselves, or I would argue maybe even the aliens, like some of the more uh, spiritually minded uh, contactees and abductees certainly felt this way. Right. Mm. Um, So you can sort of say, well, if the ET is the higher self and I am the self, then is there a lower self? And I think Bigfoot might be a good candidate for that. You know, mm. um, ET draws our attention to the stars. It's sophisticated. Bigfoot draws our attention back to earth towards animalistic, you know, uh, I wouldn't say pleasures, but like towards animalistic functions. Right. <laughs> so like there's, there's that possibility. Um, an idea that I play with later are that uh, men in black, um, because they seem to know so much about people. Like there's that famous, um, famous story of an investigator who's who meets a man in black who knows what coins are in his pocket right so they know things that only you can know and then there, then you find these other stories of men in black who act who claim to be other people who they're not or men in black who claim to be investigators and i, I kind of play with the idea that men in black might be an aspect of ourselves or one of our souls that are actively trying to protect us right mm-hmm. <laughs> to try and warn us off the path like you're getting too far down this ufo thing like stay away <laughs> Um, yeah, especially if that's death. Yeah, I guess maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, and, and, and look at Men in Black. I mean, they're a great example. Like, yeah. how many times do you read Men in Black stories and they're like, he looked like he was dead. Yeah. Right, he looked right. like he was uh, a cadaver that was dressed up, like had makeup on to look, you know, right. to look appealing. They dress like morticians. They drive around in big black, not really hearses, but they might as well functionally be yeah. hearses, right? <laughs> so I think, like, again, this death imagery that you find time and again. Um, and then things like... You know, lake monsters were interesting, and I didn't get a chance. I haven't had much of a chance to talk about lake monsters in my other books, so I finally did. And um, it's really funny because, you know, everybody was really big on what Tim Renner and I did with Weather Footprints End, and they said, and I'm flattered by the comparison, I'm not fit to tie his shoes, but they said, you know, this is Passport to Magonia for Bigfoot, right? Mm. So sort of like a Valean approach to Bigfoot. And I said, yeah, I said, maybe I should do that with lake monsters. And then I picked up Michel Mergier's lake monster traditions. And I'm like, oh, this has already been done. <laughs> and it's this book that's really hard to find. If you can get it, the copies that I've seen lately are really expensive because it's out of print. Somebody, some publishing house should 
snatch that up and reprint yeah. it because it's it's like Valet, it's like Passport to Magonia for oh, Lake yeah. Monsters. I want to check that out. Yeah, I love um, the Lake Monsters stuff. Oh, it's it's fantastic. It's <laughs> like, you know, I mean, people talk about like the dragon and the disc uh, being like this right. groundbreaking um, uh, Lake Monster book, and and it's kind of like. When I read it, it kind of reminded me of some of the ideas that you find in Rebirth of Pan because you mm. hear about it being like groundbreaking and like we're so far past some of these ideas mm. um, that, yeah, they were certainly groundbreaking at the time, but now they've been talked about so much that it's like, oh, well, that's almost kind of quaint. But Lake Monster yeah. Traditions, I think, has, has aged a lot better with that sort of psychosocial oh. interpretation. Um, mm. So... Uh, the Lake Monster thing, you actually can't draw a lot of near-death experience comparisons to Lake Monsters, um, but there's a lot more high strangeness surrounding Lake Monsters than um, than I think people realize. And the the thing that sort of cracked the Lake Monster, the Lake Monsters' role in the Ecology of Souls for me, that niche in the ecosystem, right, was um, considering just all the overwhelmingly negative associations that they have um you know when you look at the way that the lake monster is depicted it's always like a half hump which is like uh a broken version of jung's ufo as a totality symbol right mm -hmm. like you know the ufo as a totality symbol is a circle but like the half hump is always like a broken half circle right <laughs> it looks like an overturned boat there's a lot of death imagery that you can go into that um I came up with a really weird idea that they're soul devourers, but <laughs> how I get there, you can, you can sort of go on your own journey too. I feel like I'm spoiling the book for you guys, but whatever. Yeah, it's great to talk about it because it's such interesting stuff, you know, yeah. like, yeah, it's not, you know, it's not like a, a movie in the way that it can be spoiled. It's more of a, well, that's, that's yeah. the thing that I've found is that um, when talking about this, like some of these ideas are admittedly so far out there. Um, like it's it's almost more enjoyable to know where i'm going to see how i build that case i think <laughs> you know mm -hmm. um you know another idea is that i speculate that the that uh the ufo phenomenon or you know at least the ufo occupants might be psychopomps these characters that usher us over that final transition and that's a really yeah. weird idea and that's why it takes me 11 chapters to get there it's because i'm like slowly <laughs> trying to build this case when i get there eventually but yeah yeah i mean um, the, the sea yeah, monsters have like that connection to like the typhonian current too of like kenneth grant mm -hmm. and stuff the leviathan have you well i mean sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you yeah um, no i'm just curious have you like read much of grant stuff are you interested in that no i haven't but I, I do i do sort of go into similar territory because you know what what um what struck me is the fact that if you look at like the constituent parts of lake monsters um they really resemble the parts of Amet, the Egyptian soul devourer, right? Mm. Like Amet was crocodile, lion's mane, hippopotamus back, right? So hippopotamus back, yeah, that obviously fits. Crocodile head, not super common, but it appears in some Nessie reports. You know, most often it's the horse head. The mane appears in a lot of these lake monster reports. So I'm like, mm -hmm. okay, well, maybe this is that same, somehow that same thing, right? I don't know if we're talking about a species of spirit or an archetype or whatever, but let's say that lake monsters are are amet and isn't it interesting that a lot of connections um can be directly drawn between uh was it Coranzon mm -hmm. that crowley was so uh so yeah. interested in right right and then crowley sets up sets up on the shores of loch ness you know? right. yeah. 
So was he drawn there by some sort of power or did his work at Boleskine somehow go back through time to manifest for, uh, for St. Columba? You know, I, I don't know. Right. But, but I think that's, that's interesting. So, yeah, I, I think that, uh, and that's why, man, I walked away from this more frightened of Lake Monsters than I ever thought I would be, you know, yeah, right. but, you know, and you, you see allusions to this too. Um, the uh, it was Donald Ormond, I think, the guy who supposedly you know the famous exorcism of Loch Ness in the seventies. Yeah, I think right. he had chartered a boat looking for lake monsters through the um, fjord of the trolls. I think in somewhere in Scandinavia, and the the hump approached their boat, and the the guy on the boat was completely nonplussed, and he says, "Don't worry, they don't harm me like that. They only harm men's character." I'm like, <laughs> yeah, this does kind of sound like <laughs> like, like uh, Coranzon or something, right? Huh. Yeah, Coronzon's supposed to be like the the dweller on the abyss too, right? On the abyss. Yeah. What is an abyss? Yeah. It's the depths, you know. Yeah. So. Interesting. Um, sort of relatedly, and this is a bit out of left field. So we've been having these on the me. More, it started with me having these strange uh, synchronicities about turtles, and then um, Dave started kind of catching a few of them too. And so we kind of both are in this weird zone where we keep seeing these like either symbols of them or they keep appearing in these sort of odd places. Have you come across, I mean, there's so, it's such a symbolically rich animal, but have you come across any of that in the death stuff? I mean, you know, a little bit. Uh, it's So when you're looking at sort of these psychopomps, they break down into multiple categories, right? You've got natural phenomena like the sun and the moon and the aurora borealis. You've got human beings like shamans. That was one of their primary duties um, is, I guess, because they're still you know, practicing shamans worldwide, but that's one of their duties. Ancestors, dead loved ones, they can usher you across that final transition. Folk figures like the Grim Reaper or the Breton Enku, obviously religious deities, um, but also animals. Yeah. Sometimes the spirit of the animal or the literal animal itself. And, and most of the time what you see is horses, dogs, birds, horses, dogs, birds, horses, yeah. dogs, birds, right? They embody like themes of transportation or companionship or, you know, leading guidance. Right. Um, and so the animal variants, even though horses, dogs, and birds, you'll find across a lot of different cultures, um, the animal psychopomp variants are a little bit more, um, a little bit more fluid, right? Cause you'll find some cultures that treated bats that way because they could see in the dark and the underworld's in the dark. So obviously they're good candidates. And there's some, I believe Turkish cultures, that sort of treated the the turtle the same way because they're just like, you know, really focused and they just keep on going. Um, you know, later I, I do find, did find some connections in, uh, in volume two of uh, people comparing uh, flying craft to uh, turtles. Um, yeah. There was an interesting, I, I have a digression about, um, you know, UFOs seen at cemeteries. I think this is in the appendix, mm. which is, um, <laughs> sorry, quick, quick digression for people who are listening. If you look up ecology of souls you'll find four titles you'll find the ebook which has volumes one and two your best buy most thrifty buy right volume one volume two split only because it's like you know a thousand plus pages right and then the companion which is separate only because again it's so big and the companion is just references the end notes and everything but also includes three appendices of you know the dead seen in conjunction with ufo contact and uh, ufos in cemeteries right or ufos at funerals things like that and in one of those appendices um 
there is a story about children having a funeral service for their pet turtle. <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. I think it was in Montana or something. And this like Ray comes down and, you know, Jesus appears or something or what they interpreted as Jesus appears. But, you know, of course, in that very Magonian way that just sort of all gets filed under UFOs. So like, yes. And, and there are lake monsters who seem to be turtles um, or seem to be more Chelonian right. um, in the literature. You know, there was a really interesting story about, I think it was in Vietnam or Cambodia. I can't remember which, but of a, an old legend where a princess threw a sword into this, uh, this lake that supposedly, and this turtle grabbed the sword. And then years later, they discovered like a species of gigantic turtle that lives just in this pond. And it's so elusive. Like people have only seen it like three times, but yeah, if you look up like Vietnamese or Cambodian, you know, magical turtle or something, it'll probably pop up. Huh. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, so yeah, it's, it's that, but it's, but it's the same idea. And again, lakes, we're often, yeah. you know, sites of the underworld and you can see right. why, you know, it's, it's it, underworld or the other world, you know, and it's the same idea of descending, submerging. Um, this is going to yeah, be like a fine. running bit on our show. Turtle corner here. Yeah. That's what we're Turtles do. all the way down. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 And yeah the first, the, the initiating thing was during a mild psychedelic experience and coming across a smashed turtle on the road. And, that, and since then hmm. it's well, been and, on. And uh, do, do either of y'all play video games? Not, just not, just not, Pokemon. Not so so um, <laughs> in in Red Dead Redemption Two, mm-hmm. I don't think I'm conflating the. I don't think I'm conflating these two. I think this is the way it plays out. There is the a gamers cult, on you. There, there's a cult that you run into multiple times, mm-hmm. um, and they're called the Chelonians, and huh. they are all about UFO worship, if memory serves. Huh. That's weird. So. Yeah, and Red Dead Redemption Two is actually probably my favorite paranormal game because, like, there are like forty different paranormal events that happen, but you have to be in the right place at the right time, and they're never remarked upon. They're not really, you know, in any official material. It's just something that happens, like the wind or like a thunderstorm or something. You just you see, oh, it's a ghost train. Okay, cool. You know, I think it's the (laughs) it's probably uh, the way that it works. It's kind of hilarious you bring that up because. we were i was posting something on our patreon and i was looking for an image to attach to it and i i've never played red dead but um i was looking up like video game uh something like vortex or something and i i posted an image from red dead i think from that cult as the corresponding image having never played the game or anything it's just yeah, it's pretty funny it. that's crazy there yeah. you go that's another another synchronicities have been abounding lately but um i really wanted to talk to you about the chapter you have on music in the book music and ufo encounters um i know you mentioned uh howard menger in there right yeah yeah um menger i think i can't remember if he heard i always get i always get it mixed up which which plants the contact he's went to he was Um, venusians right venusian yeah. yeah so he heard magical music on venus i think adamski went to saturn and heard this music but you'll find this um described throughout the contact you literature which you know the way that they describe it is exactly what you'll find if you read walter evans wentz's fairy faith in celtic countries like the seminal ethnography of fairy folk in, in western europe right um you know, it's always described as, you know, not sounding like Western music, but, you know, the most beautiful music I've never heard, but I don't think people, human beings could play it because it was so intricate and so beautiful. Like you see these things time and time and time and time again. Um, 
you know, super common in near-death experiences as well. Mm. Um, this idea, again, described almost exactly the same. Um, happens in some cryptid reports. Um, you know, uh, uh, also uh, something, it's not a direct comparison, but, you know, music and especially ritual drumming is very important to, you know, certain shamanic trances and whatnot. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that... Uh, I probably should and probably will write a book on it at some point because um, mm-hmm. you know there have been some people who've written about like you know you know paranormal rock you know <laughs> like, <laughs> like you know occult yeah, connections yeah. to rock music and stuff but like I don't think anybody's yeah. ever tried to <laughs> to peel this music apart and there's some interesting places that you can take it like there's some rumors um, and I buy by rumors I mean like appearing in older texts but never really well attributed that maybe even the tune oh danny boy was a was a melody that was given by the fairies mm, right. so you know i think there's some some material to mine there and i guess you know i guess it's me having a, a musicology <laughs> degree um <laughs> to yeah. dust off all those cobwebs in my head that have been replaced with contactees but um but yeah um it's it's one of those things that you see time and time again is this is this reappearance of music and you see you know there are these hallmarks Tunnels, subterranean spaces, feelings of love, inaccessible knowledge, psi effects afterwards. Um, you know, you see those in NDEs and OBEs and trips to fairyland and alien abductions and you know near death and uh, shamanic stuff and entheogens. It was like it's it's always just it's always the same thing. It's just like mixing and matching people's interpretations and the things that they the beings that they see or or believe are behind it. And that's in a lot of ways the only differentiating factor. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine there is, but is there like a rich history of uh, music related to fairy encounters? Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are stories of, um, of you know, people walking up the side of Ben Bulban, which is, you know, traditionally held as being a fairy site, and them describing hearing music that they don't think could be played by human hands. Yeah, it's just, it's so common. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes it's, in some stories, it's like, that's the entire story, right? Like I was walking in the woods and I heard this wild music and right, yeah. full stop. <laughs> We're done. Um, but you know, actually happens in some Bigfoot reports too. You know, one of my favorite stories is uh, Doug Hadjashek, who was uh, one of the creators or one of the driving forces behind Monster Quest, had this cabin that they went to a couple times in the course of the series in Snellgrove Lake, I believe it was Ontario, where like you had to fly in. Like it seems like twelve visitors a year, right? This cabin. Um. And they had a number of strange things happen, some of which we talked about in where the footprints in. But one of the things was he and his son were out there on the in their you know kayaks on the lake one day, and they heard this woman that sounded like this ephemeral, highly skilled opera singer warming up <laughs> on the lake. And, you know, later that night, rocks are thrown at their house, and they hear Bigfoot whoops and stuff like that. So it's like, oh, what is that connection? You know, I don't know. But music definitely seems to be a part of it. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's crazy. crazy. Uh, I wonder, like, I remember, do you know the sort of Irish storyteller guy, uh, Eddie Lenahan? Oh, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a great... <laughs> yeah. I'm, I could just listen to him talk and tell yeah. stories for, like, hours. Yeah, he, he had he's one done story some great research. He's, he's, um... Yeah. You know, you run across these characters, and you're like, is this some... Is this actually a verifiable source? But, you know, most fairy scholars um, that I that I have read will say that yeah you can trust what eddie lenahan says i think mm. yeah he had one about where like someone was sort of like almost like conscripted to like play in a fairy band or something <laughs> yeah well you know it's 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 super common these fairy abduction tales like yeah 
yeah, typically women and children, vulnerable sectors of the population, right? Especially back then. But um, you'll find stories of people being taken in as entertainers quite often. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And they'll, you know, they'll be drafted into a fairy party that they think lasts a night and they come back out and it's, you know, 50 years later and no one recognizes them. Yeah. Which, you know, is probably an exaggeration of some of these stories, right? Um, But, and, and that's something else that I sort of, found when i was working through this because i was really dead set on finding like a ghost story with missing time right gotta find this Mm. and maybe it's out there but i I just really couldn't and the ones that you do find tend to be more like time slips you know where like they step back into that they have missing time but they also like felt as if they were in 1940 as opposed to 2022 right and um and that's when I sort of decided, okay, it seems to me like the missing time thing only happens with travel to the other world, right? Mm-hmm. It seems to be like, so it might be a useful way to distinguish which reality yeah. your experience happens in, right? Is there missing time or not? But having said all that, I did speak firsthand with a ghost investigator out of Charlotte, North Carolina, a really nice guy um, who had set up uh his investigation in a service station, an old abandoned service station that was supposed to be haunted. He said the entire night was dead as a doornail, almost oddly so, um, but it was dead as a doornail. He didn't capture anything, but he comes back and all of his batteries, which he had replaced before he went, like that day, were all corroded. Wow. And, you know, I, I couldn't find anything that can make batteries corrode overnight i mean i'm sure there's some sort of chemical that you can spill on them or something but to have that happen to all of your equipment that's perfectly dry that was like yeah. you know just set up around a service station i can't think of a way that that would happen there's an implication that maybe there was some sort of time lapse there yeah the wow. time lapse just to the equipment or something you know it's, it's wild huh yeah that reminds me of like have you i forget who wrote it it was a book called an adventure do you know of that one it's like uh early 20th century i think where these two women are going on sort of like a jaunt through town and they end up walking through the town, but it's like years earlier then. Like it's sort of like this weird time slip. Thing. Yeah. It's that like, sounds, that know. sounds vaguely familiar, but you know, I mean, yeah. you, you see that in so many other things, you know, it's kind of like a Brigadoon kind of, yeah. kind of idea as well. Mm. Um, uh, yeah. And, and that's something that the book actually didn't, you know, I was like, okay, look, this book's a third, the length of the Bible. I can, I can stop. Right. <laughs> I didn't address time and you know i think that as as powerful as um as powerful as this model is for me personally again doesn't not saying it's objectively true but i find it really works for me um time plays some sort of role in this i don't know what it is you know i was going to talk about the idea that et was actually future races of humans coming back but like it's just it's it's been yeah. done better elsewhere at greater lengths, so I just sort of left it out. But yeah, ideas like retrocausality and you know, time is probably cyclical and circular and loops back on itself. Yeah, I, I was just <laughs> like, this, this, this will be a third again longer if I try right. to bring time into it. So I just, <laughs> I just avoided that like the plague. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it's being done so well by like uh, Eric Wargo right now. True, and yeah. People like yeah. that. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, time is time is messed up <laughs> you know, yeah just to say nothing of the theoreticians um in you know i mean i i love eric's work so this is not a dig on eric but like the you know respected laboratory the- theoreticians who are yeah. talking about time like it's just it is its own thing that i didn't even want to touch you know yeah mm. um right it's yeah 
<laughs> Given the uh, the subject matter of the book, I was curious, um, considering her background in theology, I was wondering if you had read Diana Pasolka's uh, American Cosmic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just—I mean, the, the books couldn't be more different, but it it kind of conjured like a weird similarity of somebody coming from like a background of studying religion, writing a book about UFOs. And then you coming from, I mean, you're bringing that into it, but coming from writing about, you know, high strangeness to writing about religion and UFOs, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I, I really admire Diana's work and we know what I find really interesting about her stuff is that, um, it ties into a topic that I find really interesting that I didn't get to talk about in this book, but it's almost like, you know, you find these scientists who are so enmeshed with this belief that they're getting instructions on how to do things from, you know, another source. Right. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to not read that for me. Um, again, always trying to throw off the extraterrestrial lens, whatever I can, <laughs> it's hard to not read that for me as like a variation on the idea of a civilizing trickster, like a Prometheus that sort of was like trying mm. to give human beings the tools to break free from, you know, from, mm. uh, from our mor mortal bondage. Um, or, or even, you know, you could argue that the serpent in the garden of Eden was also, you know, another civilizing trickster. Right. Like we, we got, you know, the technology that you get isn't always the technology or the knowledge that you get is not always the best thing. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's interesting. You know, there's um there's an old story that uh, Valet quoted in Passport to Magonia that I mentioned later in the book because I have a brief section where I talk about the possibility of sylphs, and it's uh, Fasius Cardan, who I believe in the Renaissance, if memory serves, um, was approached by these beings who uh, spoke a little bit about how uh, when we die, um, no ego, you know, makes that transition, and uh, and I. Uh, you know, I thought it was interesting because Fasius Cardan was also uh, a uh, very prominent mathematician. He came up with some interesting developments, I think. I can't remember exactly what, but he was, he was a prominent Renaissance figure um, of the era and the time. So, yeah, it seems like there's always these like little snippets of information that's given from elsewhere. You know, and I think some people call them E.T. and some people call them muses and, you know, mm -hmm. who knows? True, yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, maybe we could start wrapping it up around there. I thought it might be fun to ask you what you think about the Georgia Guidestones. <laughs> Man, you know, I, I, I do this really weird thing, right? Where I fluctuate between like the absolute fantastic and the utterly skeptical, um, it, whereas I feel like, you know, most of paranormal is in this like orthodox mm -hmm. line of thinking. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a good thing. It's just, I, I'm calling out my own behavior because I, I've, I've never really, I, I, for me, the Georgia Guidestones were open and shut um, from the work that uh, in that dark skies over Elberton documentary mm -hmm. um, that was associated with uh, Dr. Future, who's a gentleman that I've had the pleasure to meet Um good friend of Adam saying over on the conspiracy normal podcast. And mm -hmm. it looks like they sort of kind of outed this RC Christian guy. I think it was right. his name. Um, so to me, it was kind of just always like, you know, the pet project of a really nasty eugenicist. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, it's interesting to frame the prescriptions of the Guidestones within the current uh, world climate. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, I have to admit, like, if there's any time that it seemed appropriate for the Guidestones to, for there to be a development in the Guidestones story in the, since their erection, uh, it probably is now, right? Like, this is just yeah. the time when things <laughs> happen to, to things like that. Um, you know, and then there's a whole other side of it that I I'm interested in, but I can never retain. That's like the synchromistic side of the timing of it and you know, the, right. the dates and the things like that. Yeah. So, you know, being here in Georgia, um, I never had the, I never took the opportunity to go see the Guidestones because I was like, yeah. let's just, you know, it is what it is. Like, and that's the thing about some of these paranormal sites is you go there and you stand there and you're like, cool. <laughs> okay yeah. well now it's a two two hour drive back you know <laughs> so yeah. i was never really close to elberton and um so i never got to see him which obviously i regret now because they're gone um yeah. but uh yeah i i think that you know there what we did have a uh political candidate who was calling for their destruction and i think it just with this political climate it whipped someone into a frenzy who brought it down yeah there might be some sort of occult significance to it i'm not discounting that but that's just that's just my take yeah I, yeah, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I have, I have no idea, but I just thought it would be a good well, I mean, thing the other yeah. thing is, like, if, if, if somebody really wanted to bring those down with, like, one or two well-placed charges, I think they could have, and yeah. they didn't, you know, if yeah, it was right. some sort of professional or someone with any degree of sophistication, you know. So instead, they just sort of partially took it down, and then the rest of it was taken down because it was deemed a safety hazard, I think. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Um. I, I haven't I haven't checked any of the follow-ups. I mean, it's not in the news anymore. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so what happened? What happened to the guy? Are they arrested and his motives? And you know, you're no not getting any follow-up yeah. on that. Right. It's just yeah. too much. It's just it's almost as if it was ten years ago now. <laughs> that's that's the modern news cycle. Like, you yeah. know, it's a week ago is ages ago in terms yeah. of the way the news operates. So, yeah, I've always been interested in them. Um, you know, I I I think that. Uh, just a one nasty person's vision for, for the world. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, you know, I, I have to admit like in that respect, it's kind of good to see him go. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there is, there is a certain irony. If the RC Christian story is correct, that somebody who would have sort of been in that same voter block, is probably the same person who took him down. Right. Right. It is interesting. Um, yeah. 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 That's uh, so. the way it went kind of in a circle like that is pretty interesting but... <laughs> yeah i mean so I, you know not and this isn't me being political or anything it's just yeah it is what it is and yeah. i'll never see him i guess <laughs> yeah, yeah not me either I, I I, never... I, i'm trying to think that um the one thing that i did find interesting was that um if memory serves the official stance is that there was no time capsule and uh I think yeah. uh, Dr. Future said that he thinks that there was a time capsule. So that's really interesting to me that somebody who kind of debunked the, mm. a lot of the mystery around the Guidestones thinks that there's a time capsule that we're not being told about. That's yeah. Cause there crazy. was that kind of hoaxed. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I loved it because I thought yeah. it was, I thought I was just calling out the humor in it, but it turns out, you know, that we found 2000 pills, yeah. 1500 right. pills. Boy, we're going to analyze these 500 uh, yeah. quaaludes. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that was true. Yeah, it was like Quaaludes and like a Playboy or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, they got me with that one, but whatever. Yeah, it got me too. Like I, I typed a comment. Man, it's so funny that they keep on. I was yeah. like, oh, that's because it's a joke. Yeah, yeah. I, right. I, I got, I got with that one too. Yeah. 
um, real quick, I was just thinking about uh, back when you were talking about your model, um, I guess, of the descent into the afterlife to answer Ben's question. Have you ever seen uh, Solaris by Tarkovsky? Oh, man, I think ages ago. It's pretty old, isn't it? I mean, yeah, again, yeah. It's by modern standards, yeah. Like 70, 71 or 72. I feel like he kind of brings to screen um, like a bit of what you're talking about, especially the the emanations of this like giant conscious ocean and stuff is is like the climax of the film and stuff and you know i'll have to check it out because yeah. you know when i did see it i wasn't involved in any of this stuff and what i find really interesting is once you start once you start playing with ideas of archetypes and some of these ideas like it sort of allows you a, a means to approach something that you don't know what it is but you're like okay well i don't know what that is but this kind of looks like you know the the uh the womb of the earth mother swallowing someone whole and this kind of looks like that and that kind of a good example of that which is the show that i'm very sad was canceled was uh hbo max's raised by wolves hmm. oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, i watched that yeah i you know i i kind of got soured on the whole like mystery box television thing after lost like just you know you've got to have a you've got to have an answer for this stuff and i'm not sure that they had solid answers for it but at the same time on that archetypal level like it made perfect sense to me i was like completely on board you know so like on the plot yeah. level i was like i don't know if they can pull this off but the rest of it was just i found it just as interesting looking at it that way yeah especially the first like the first chunk of it was like the most symbolically like just like overloaded it was like an, it was incredible yeah how much I mean, the, yeah and then it was just one of those things where like the more like characters got named and stuff, you're like, Oh, these people knew what they were doing. They weren't just choosing cool yeah. names. Like there's, yeah. you know, so just, yeah. So and it's been canceled. There's some rumors that it might get picked up somewhere, but, but yeah, like that's, that's what I find so refreshing about getting more involved with that archetypal perspective mm. is that like it, it almost feels like you end up like Matrix at the uh, Neo at the end of the Matrix, right? You can see the source code of the universe <laughs> and see the way that things are put together, and you know. yeah, oh. yeah, raised by wolves. I didn't know they canceled it. That's too bad. <laughs> That's yeah, getting the bad news now. <laughs> Appar <laughs> apparently, they had a plan that we'll never know, or maybe it'll get picked up by Hulu or something. Yeah, um, they always they say that. I remember when the OA got canceled. They're like, we had three more seasons planned out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you know, sometimes what I think that a lot of people need to come to, to grips with, myself to a certain degree included, is that sometimes it's better to just let the thing die, you know, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to have it come back and kind of do a half-assed ending, you know? True. Like, oh, you know, yeah. Arrested Development, they ran to the damn ground. Mm. Like, yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so where uh, shall people be directed to find all your stuff? joshuacutchin.com j-o-s-h-u-a-c-u-t-c-h-i-n like a cut on your chin dot com <laughs> um, and, and remind me when this is is this dropping like this week or something or next week we'll have probably. it out pretty soon yeah. Okay. yeah probably next week okay so I guess um, probably by the time you hear this um, the the only thing that you'll be able to catch me at um, on this sort of short notice is is uh, I'm going to be at Dragon Con in Atlanta so I've been like, you know, throwing my name their way and they've been like, no, no, no. And then eventually <laughs> I did this year. They're like, yes. I'm like, great. I can go to something that's like, you know, an hour down the road. So nice. yeah. What, what is that? It's, is it like a, it's a comic book convention, oh, um, cool. but they also have like a paranormal track. 
Oh, okay. So, you know, I'm looking at like, I'm looking at the other paranormal personalities that are there and it's like a bunch of ghost hunters and like (laughs) people from ghost hunting TV shows. And I'm like, Oh, Oh, you guys brought me on as the alien guy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, you know, I'll be the, I'll be your UFO guy. I might not be your alien guy. That's going to be his last. Damn. That sounds awesome. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And so the, the book is available like, Amazon, that's not that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, unfortunately, just Amazon. You know, okay. I I have all my I have tons of problems with the Bezos Empire, but um, they do a very good job with some of these direct publishing things. Oh yeah, and it's, mm. you know, it's kind of what it is right now. Right. For sure. Um, yeah. Well, that's a think, monopoly. Yeah. Yeah, I think after you know, um, maybe in five or six years or something, I might take it to a different publisher so mm-hmm. it can. So it can be off of that and not yeah. feed the empire. But right now with me doing it myself, because this is the first book that I have solely authored that hasn't had a publisher. And I kind of wanted to learn the Great. ins and outs of that. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's been, a, it's been a learning experience. Um, you know, had That's to put awesome. in a lot more money up front than I thought I would to get it all done, but I'm just enamored with the way it turned out. Um, yeah. And part of that too, sorry, I know we're trying to wrap this up. Oh, but no, um, no, no, part part yeah. of that too was, um, you know, you hear about, directors who like have an idea and they don't want to shop it around to a bunch of studios because they don't want a bunch of fingerprints on it and that's kind of the way i felt with this like i'm writing this for me i don't want to change a word you know i don't want to cut anything out i don't want to break it into six books or something like i might be forced to do like yeah. I, I want to ha- I want to have complete control over this. So you know, I'm uh, absolutely thrilled with the artwork that Johnny Decker Miller contributed. Um, yeah, yeah, we were just talking about that. It's, it's really great. Cover, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and he was just you know, in my my, my policy whenever I work with people is I give them a couple of ideas, and then I say, now you do you and use your best judgment because I think that's you know why you hire people, <laughs> creative yeah. types, right? Yeah. So he did that, and then uh, you know Barbara Fisher from Six Degrees of John Keel podcast uh, did help me with editing and. Um, yeah. Mike Cleland uh, did the layout and, you know, Mike just is a fantastic human being. So uh, it was a labor of love. Um, and uh, it, it takes a village, I guess, to, <laughs> to put out a gigantic <laughs> book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Congratulations, man. Cause it's, it's a great achievement. Uh, we're really into it and everybody listening, pick this thing up. It's a steel, you know, especially the kindle with kindles like 10 bucks or something the, ki- the kindle the kindle is 10 bucks yeah. or for free with kindle unlimited right. and you know with with the uh with the kindle version you don't even need the companion you know because you've, you've got all your end notes at, at the end um there has been a slight snafu with the companion um so i did not uh want to make people pay want to make people pay for their references because if you get a book you should and it has end notes like you should get the end notes right so um, the original plan was to put a PDF of the companion up on the website. And so if you were a print completionist like I am, you can buy it in print or you can not do that. And you can just go to my website and download the PDF, right? And that's that was all fine and good, but I had a slight change to the cover that Mike and I wanted to do. So when I re-uploaded that to Kindle, it flagged me as publishing that PDF. So it was saying I was copyright infringing myself. <laughs> the algorithm found that PDF. So I pulled that PDF offline. So in the book, you'll see it says, you know, you can purchase the companion or you can access it at this URL. That URL does not have the PDF yet, but by the end of the week, it should, because that's sort of over the time frame and we've switched. Yeah. Mike and I have rearranged it and switched some stuff up. So it shouldn't be triggering the algorithm anymore. So cool. Yeah, that's a great, I guess you got to have that, the end notes if you're uh Yeah. And you yeah, know, it's yeah. just, uh, again, I didn't want to make people, 
pay for it, but the the damn companion's like 350 pages long or something like that. So like, <laughs> yeah. if they're already thick books, to be one book with that, like, I mean, you know, it's <laughs> like that's that's a, yeah. that's, a that's a chunk. Yeah, was, you'd have to use that yeah. really thin paper or something that they used to use. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I Amazon's binding book binding is has gotten a lot better than it was, but it's still not like right. yeah, it's, you yeah. know. A vellum, a vellum monk's yeah. manuscript or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but uh, thanks, thanks so much, guys, for having me on. It's been an absolute of pleasure. Of course, yeah. yeah. Check out the book. Uh, it's highly recommended for sure. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>